Okay, so this is the deal this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. We are completing our little mini-series that, I mean, we could have just named it Devoted, right? Because we've been talking about the early church devotion and how they were devoted to different practices. We've seen that they were devoted to the Apostles' Doctrine, that they were devoted to fellowship, that they were devoted to prayer, that they were devoted to communion, that they're devoted to worship. And this morning we're going to talk about how they were devoted to telling others about Jesus, all right? And I just want to warn you, this morning is going to be a little bit of a roller coaster ride, okay? So I, I, I'm so glad you're awake, and um, I hope you had your cup of coffee this morning, because I'm going to ask you to buckle up, all right, and enjoy the ride. It's going to be fun, and um, you might be a little disoriented at some point because of how much we're going to kind of go through the Bible, but I think... And I'm praying that at the end of it, you're going to be like, oh, wow, that was pretty rad. And you feel encouraged and just excited to tell others about Jesus. Does that sound good? Are you all right? Okay, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. Let's read God's word, pray, and dive into it. Does that sound good? Is everyone there? Okay, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This has been our teaching text for some weeks now. Let's just read again. And they, referring to the early church, they were devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe, everyone say awe. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. Now, pay attention to this next verse. Praising God and having favor. Everyone say favor. I love this. Having favor to some people, but with, no, with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Join me in a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you, God, for your faithfulness. We thank you for your promises that when we gather together to praise you, you promise to be here in our midst. Jesus, would you give us an awareness of your presence this morning? As we worship you in spirit just now, as we were singing praises to you, now as we worship you with our mind, as we pay attention to your word. God, would you speak by your word, by the power of your word and the demonstration of your spirit? Would you bring application to our lives? Would you encourage? Would you build up? Would you correct? Would you rebuke? Would you just speak to us this morning? Give us the sensitivity to hear what you desire to say. God, that's our prayer. Come awaken your people. Awaken us this morning to who you are. I pray that the end of our time this morning, that we would be more in love and in awe of you. And in Jesus' name, your church said, amen. Amen. 
It's crazy to think seven years ago I was at Calvary Chapel Bible College. Seven years ago. And uh, I showed up at 18 years old and I was kind of fresh out of the world. I mean, my kind of, my story, I've shared it before. I like to say that it was not um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was sex, drugs, and surfing. That was my life in high school. It was, that's what I was into. That's what I did. And at 17 years old, God grabbed a hold of my heart and I was just on fire. I heard the gospel kind of for the first time. I'd been around it, but now it was just one of those moments where it penetrated the heart. And I understood the grace of God, that it was like, by God's grace, well, I don't have to do anything to earn his approval. Like, because of the shed blood of Jesus, like, I'm just, I'm accepted in. All I have to do is receive. I mean, it was just, it was just like mind-blowing. And I was just set on fire. I ended up going to Calvary Chapel, Lompoc, and I was just plugged into a church there. And the people just loved on me and loved on me and loved on me and loved on me. And I had this hunger for God's word, but I was still so new. I was still so fresh to everything. And about nine months in, the church there actually sent me to Calvary Chapel Bible College. They saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. They said, hey, we want to send you down to Bible College. Go check it out. We believe God's got a call in your life. And we just want to see you just immerse in God's word. I think you'll love it. And um, I ended up going and I loved it. But my first semester, I mean, I just still had no idea what was going on. It was kind of my first time like immersed in Christian culture. You know, like we kind of use different language than the rest of the world, you know. And so I was from this like small little Calvary Chapel Lompoc. Like it's a smaller church community. And still, I, I still didn't, I wasn't like exposed to the wider kind of Christian culture, like into all the worship songs and kind of the vocabulary and all these things. And it was quite surprising. Surprising. I mean, I had an NIV Bible, and if you're going to Bible college, you have an NIV Bible. It's not like the best translation, like, um, and stuff. So I was just like, I was fresh off the block, like, just thrown in there, all right? And um, I remember my first semester, a group of people came up to me, and they asked me if they wanted, they invited me to go with them to go witnessing. Like, What? <laughs> Okay, they were to go witnessing, and they're like, yeah. I'm like, what's that? And they're like, we're, we're, we're going to go to the mall, we're going to tell others about Jesus. And I was horrified. <laughs> I was like, hor- I was genuinely super, super nervous. And I totally, like, hid myself from those group of people that went every Friday night to the mall there in Marietta. I did not want to go. And it, I, I felt shame about it. As the years went past, there was this shame and there was this guilt that I just like, I had this resistance to going and just telling strangers about Jesus. I thought there was something really, really, really wrong with me. And as we talk about telling others about Jesus this morning, I wonder if that experience that I had, if others had. And I think it is. I think it's a common experience. I think that it is common to feel resistance or to feel hesitant to telling strangers about Jesus. I think it's just as common to feel a sense of shame and guilt for not telling others about Jesus. You like, you go and you're like, man, I cut it. That was totally an opportunity. And I sense the Holy Spirit kind of poking and prodding me, but I didn't do it. And then there's this like shame and guilt cycle that we can get in and we just totally get stunted in our relationship with God and evangelism, right? Am I the only one? Anyone experienced that before? And I think it's a pretty common experience. And, and, and in fact, that might be some of you. There might be some others of you in this room 
that kind of actually go aligned with the statistics that we see here um, in this survey that was done by Barna Research. Let me read it to you. The survey was done in 2021, and the survey found out that almost half of millennials, 47%, agree at least somewhat that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that one day they will share the same faith. 47% of practicing Christians believe that it is not okay, in fact, that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will convert. In a more recent survey referred to as the Great Disconnect, Reclaiming the Heart of the Great Commission, Barna found out that 46% of practicing Christians said that mission is only for some Christians. That the Great Commission is only for some Christians. That's for the pastors, Right? Like, that's what, that's what we put our tie to. You guys do it, you know? Like, that's your job, right? That's the idea. That's the idea that a lot of people carry. So wherever you're at, maybe it's shame. Maybe there's guilt. Maybe there's just a complete resistance to where you actually think it's morally wrong for whatever reason. This morning, we're going to look at that the heart of God is to tell other people about his son, Jesus. That this is not just a side thing, but that this is a central, central aspect to Christianity. Today we're going to see that telling others about Jesus is in fact central to the Christian faith. That the gospel of God, that the gospel of Jesus, that the gospel of grace is the power of God unto salvation. Romans 1.16. All right. That the gospel must be preached. The message of Jesus must be shared. But this is, the, this is the thing here. There is more than one way to do it. How we get to that place where the message is preached and the gospel of shared, how we get there is not only through street evangelism. It's not only through a harvest crusade. There's many different ways that we can get to that point to where we share about the person of Jesus. And so my goal this morning is actually, it's to expand your vision, to expand our vision of what it looks like to be devoted to sharing Jesus with others. I want to expand our vision. And to do this, we're going to look at three things. Number one, we're going to look at the mission of God. Number two, we're going to look at the method of Jesus. And number three, we're going to look at the motivation of the church. Let's begin with the mission of God. The mission of God. The mission of God answers the question of why. Why am I here and why do we do this? In fact, it even goes deeper. Not only why do we share Jesus with other people, but why, in fact, am I here in existence? Like, why is there breath in my lungs? Why was I created? Why was I born? Why? What is my purpose here on earth? Like, we live in a moment where, where the, the atheistic worldview and the materialistic worldview said, you're here by accident, you're here for nothing, you came from nothing, and you're going nowhere. But the Bible says that you're here on purpose, that God made you with a purpose, that you're here on purpose, and that you're, you've got a purpose in the direction for your life. It's all found actually in the mission of God in the very first page of your Bible. We see in the first page of our Bible that God's intention for, the hum, for humanity is found here on page one. It's important to note that God, as the divine designer, as the creator, designed humanity on purpose for a purpose. 
And this purpose, the mission of God for humanity, is referred to as the creation mandate. Creation. Everyone say creation. creation. Everyone say mandate. Other theologians refer to this as the cultural mandate. It'll be up on the screen, the cultural or the creation mandate. We find it in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the reason why you exist, not only you as a Christian, but even why non-Christians exist and they do not know it, why people exist. All right, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image, humanity in his own image. Everyone say image. The Imago Dei, right? In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. He blessed them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is referred to as the creation or the cultural mandate. From the very beginning, God desired to partner with humanity to extend his rule and his reign over the earth. Okay, fun little theological fact. Did you know that God is three in one, right? The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So there's relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So God was not dependent on humanity to actually be a relational God. God has always been a relational God before humans entered into the picture. Are you following? Because there's a relation between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. God is also not dependent on humanity to be loving because there was a love relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Therefore, God is eternally relational and God is eternally loving. Are you following? This is some theology here. We We were made in the image of God to be his reflection. Therefore, we are, our fabric of our being, we were designed to be relational and we're designed to be loving. Is that kind of cool? The imago Dei, the image of God. We were created in his image to reflect God. And God then blessed humanity and he told them to fill the earth by multiplying it and by subduing it. Now, the phrase being made in the image of God also means that we were designed to be representatives of God's divine rule. We were called to represent God as God is the supreme ruler. Okay, follow on with me. Um, A Bible commentator, theologian, Andreas Kostenberger says this referring to the Imago Dei, the image of God. Referring even to just kind of the ancient world, he says that the erecting, of a sovereign's image in a given location was tantamount to establishing that person's claim to authority and rule. Okay? Let me break that down for you. Like, remember in Ephesus, you had the goddess Diana or Artemis, and she was there in Ephesus. Therefore, that erecting of that image of that idol, Diana, was a picture to the entire region that that goddess is the one who is the authority and rules over that region, right? Like when you go into a shop and there's maybe a statue or maybe there's a Buddha saying like, this is the one that is that has rulership over this area. That's the claim of what an idol is. Are you following? So what God is doing by creating us in the image of God, Andreas Kostomir says this, by placing his image on the man and the woman, and by setting them in a particular environment. Therefore, God assigns to them the mandate of representative rulership. 
So we reflecting the Imago Dei, the image of God, humanity was placed in the garden so that when all other living creatures looked at man, man would be pointing back to God, saying God is the ruler of this place. Is that pretty rad? So then the creation mandate, they were told to be fruitful and multiply. To rule the world and to subdue it. Now the idea of ruling it or having dominion over it, that's the idea of rulership again. They're heirs of the supreme ruler. Jesus is king. God is king. They are the heirs of the ruler. They're called then to rule and to have dominion and to subdue the land as a representative of God as the supreme ruler. Are you following? Then they're called to multiply, to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. In other words, they're supposed to procreate together. And from procreation comes little humans, little Adam and Eves, that would be little idols or little representatives of God that would then point back to God. And they were called then to fill the earth with humanity. They were actually supposed to extend the reign of God or to extend the Garden of Eden to fill the entire earth to be representatives throughout all of earth. That God is the supreme ruler. Are you following? This is pretty cool, huh? Okay, this is referred to as the, I told you we're going to geek out on the Bible this morning. This is called the creation or the cultural mandate. All right. They were called to represent the rule of God. Well, how do you represent the rule of God? Okay, be fruitful, be multiply, to, to have more kids, to extend that representative rule. But how do you actually like, how do you actually reflect the rulership of God? Well, the rulership of God or the way that God ruled was in blessing. Notice, everything he create, created, he said what? It is good. 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 And then, not on this one, but the one before. He blessed Adam and Eve. And at the end of Genesis 1, it says that it was very good. God was pleased. What's he doing? He's blessing the area, the environment, the creation with his goodness. He's blessing it. Therefore, what Adam and Eve then, the creation mandate can be summarized in these two words then. Blessing and multiplication. They were to extend the blessing of God throughout the rest of the earth through multiplication by procreation. By having other little kids, there would be other human, humans, humanity would spread, they would be little representatives of God's sovereign rule, and they would bless the earth by having dominion over it. So as to extend God's blessing and God's multiplication. Are you following with me? This is key to understanding our whole time today. So as everyone, give me some nods. We're following. Blessing and multiplication, the creation cultural mandate. Super rad, super cool. Genesis chapter one. God was sending them not out of the garden, but to expand and to extend the garden. Okay? But Adam and Eve failed. Rather than filling the earth with blessing, what happened? They rebelled against God, sin entered into the picture, and they filled the earth all right with a curse, not a blessing. A curse entered into the picture in Genesis chapter 3. We refer to it as the fall. And the curse spread like wildfire. In fact, yeah, they ended up multiplying, but the firstborn son ended up being a murderer. There's a curse. 
And generations and generations go by and things get so bad, in fact, that God has to start over just a few generations in. You know the story, the story of Noah, the story of the flood. One man out of all of humanity finds grace in the eyes of God. He has to build an ark so that God can bring judgment on a rebellious people. We're told actually in Genesis chapter 6 that the earth was filled with violence. Notice the mandate for Adam and Eve was to fill the earth, but with blessing through multiplication. Oh, they filled the earth all right, but it was through multiplication that brought a curse, that brought a violence, that brought violence. So God had to judge the earth. This is how it was created to be. And so he brought the flood and the flood judged the earth. But then at the end of that story in Genesis chapter nine, verse one, we read this. It'll be on the screen. So cool. God blessed Noah. And his sons. And he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. <gasps> See what's going on? It's the creation mandate. Given to Noah then. Okay, start over. God bless them. Extend my blessing. Fill the earth. I want to bless all creation. God was set not to curse the world. God's desire, his heart, was to reach the world, reach his creation through blessing. And Noah's descendants did this. They ended up filling the earth. In fact, if you read Genesis chapter 9, the end of it, Genesis chapter 10, it's this genealogy of the descendants of Noah. There's kind of a scene that happens there. One of his sons gets blessed. One of his sons get cursed. They have all these descendants. And then the ones that got cursed, they ended up in Genesis chapter 10. They ended up coming to a valley, the valley of Shinar. And they said this. They said, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And rather than filling the earth, they said, no, let's stay here. Rather than making a name for God and giving him rule, they said, no, let's stay here. Let's build a city. Let's build a tower, the Tower of Babel that reaches to a heaven. Let's make a name for ourselves. So they failed once again at the creation mandate. And so God then extends it to a new person going down that line from Noah to Shem to a guy to a man named Abraham. Genesis chapter two, verse 17, we read this. God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will multiply your offspring. You guys can put that one on the screen. Genesis chapter 22. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be? All the nations of the earth shall be? Because you've obeyed my voice. What's he doing here? God then raises up another family. He finds another man and he blesses this man and he gives him a promise that from your offspring, you're going to fill the earth. There's going to be more of your offspring than the stars are in the sky, than the sand in the seashore. And they are going to be a, bring a blessing, not just to his family, but to what? To all the earth, to all the nations are going to be blessed through this one family. Are you following here? This has been the mission of God from the very beginning. Humanity was designed to reflect the image and the glory of God, to extend God's blessing throughout all of the earth through the process of multiplication, 
to pass it down from generation to generation to generation, pointing all of creation back to the good creator. This was always God's mission for humanity. He gave the law given to Moses, the the Abrahamic covenant here where they were to bless the people would go down to Jacob, which would then give to the nation of Israel and would go on and on through the nation of Israel. Moses was given the commandments of God that was supposed to be a witness, that was supposed to be an example of God's holiness and God's justice and God's mercy to the nations. Get this, God has always been a sending God. Sending Adam and Eve to extend his reign and blessing. Sending Noah back out into the earth to fill the earth with his blessing. Sending Abraham back into the earth to fill it with blessing from his offspring. All the nations shall be blessed. You can summarize the mission of God in this. The mission of God is to partner with humanity to bring blessing to the earth through multiplication. This has always been God's intention for humanity, for you and for me. Is this pretty cool? But man, how far we've gotten it wrong, right? You see, my life, your life, our lives are meant for more than simply climbing the corporate ladder or building our retirement accounts. Our lives are meant for more than comfort and ease, Netflix and chill. Our lives are meant more than entertainment and pleasure. Our lives are meant for more than even building a legacy for our families and for our children. Our lives were designed, created by a good creator to be representative of the God who created the heavens and the earth. We were born, all of humanity was born to extend God's blessing to others. We were born to be participants, not just spectators in God's kingdom. Your life, my life that we have been given, it is not for us to create our own story. You're not here to create a story out of your life. No, you've been invited into God's story. You're not the main character. I'm not the main character. Jesus is the main character. And he's invited us in to be participants for his glory and for his kingdom and for the good of other people. Are you feeling that craving that you were designed and destined for more? Because you were. You are. You see, the worldview right now that has definitely creeped into the church, into every single one of us, is to live for self, is to do what does, what's right to you, to build your kingdom, your family, your life. We become more isolated, more individualistic than ever before. And we wonder why we're all just so unmotivated and bummed out all the time. Because we were destined and designed for more. To not live for self, but to live for God and to live for other people. We are not the main character of the story. No, we've been invited into God's story and he is the main character. Our lives don't even belong to us. The breath in our lungs does not even belong to us. Our children don't even belong to us. They are all his. That we are called to steward. That we are called to rule and have dominion over through blessing. For his kingdom and for the good of others. 
This is why you were created. This is why I was created. This is why every single person who has the image of God stamped upon them was created. This has been the mission of God. Number two, let's look at it at the method of Jesus. Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, all failed to do the creation mandate. They all failed to fulfill the mission of God. They all failed to go into the world and to extend blessing to the other nations. So God ended up sending not another man, but God himself, his son, to become a man. To fulfill what humanity failed at doing. And so Jesus came on a mission to seek and to save the lost, to bring God's blessing down to earth. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came to fulfill what humanity failed to do. God in the flesh went throughout the regions of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, extending the kingdom of God, healing diseases, befriending sinners, proclaiming good news to the poor, setting captives free, recovering the sight of the blind, teaching the kingdom of God, calling fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, prostitutes to follow him. He went on a mission to seek and to save the lost to you and to me. And what did Jesus do when he met them? He brought blessing. He brought blessing to the poor. He brought blessing to the rich, to the leper, to the Lord, to the religious, to the Roman centurion, to the tax collector, to the demonized, to the disease, and to the outcast. He brought blessing when we don't deserve it. It's called grace. Full of grace and truth. Jesus came to fulfill the mission that humanity failed at. He became a man to fulfill the mission of the Father. To extend God's kingdom and blessing throughout the whole earth. Jesus came to represent God. Not in the image of God. But as the very image of the invisible God. God in human flesh. But the greatest act of blessing that Jesus did. The method of Jesus for blessing the world was through sacrifice. Why did humanity fail at it? Because there was this curse that brought sin. It wasn't blessing that was spread across the world. It was a curse that brought disease and violence and murder and death. So what did Jesus do? Jesus took on the curse. The first Adam, get this, he was blessed but filled creation with a curse. Jesus, referred to as the last Adam by the Apostle Paul, Jesus was cursed but fills with a new creation with blessing. A new creation. A born again creation. With a new nature. Filled with the Spirit of God. The first Adam brought death. The last Adam brings life. His name is Jesus. Jesus came to fulfill what humanity failed to do. To bring blessing. And the way that he brought multiplication wasn't through procreation. No, it was through the cross, through his death, burial, and resurrection. It was actually through his death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus was raised to newness of life and he creates a new creation. What are we? The old has passed away. Behold, the new. All things have become new. We're his new creation. The multiplication process came through the sacrificial life of Jesus. We have life in his blood. We've been forgiven. And so the method of Jesus then to fulfill the mission of God 
he extends then to his disciples. It's what I would call the the creation mandate updated. It's referred to as the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus, after he took on the curse of sin, after he conquered sin and death, he rose victoriously in newness of life. Then he actually breathes on the disciples. He fills them with the Holy Spirit. And then he gives them a new commission. Jesus came and he said to them, All authority. And heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Notice, this is the creation mandate reinstated or updated. I've got a table to show you because I love tables. They're fun. Notice the creation mandate was the mandate to rule the world as representatives of God. Notice the Great Commission to go into all the world and make disciples. Notice the creation mandate, authority given by God to those made in the image of God. But notice the image of God was tainted by sin. So Jesus had to take care of sin. He's redeeming the image of God on us, on his redeemed. So authority then is given by Jesus to the followers of Jesus, to the, to the new creation. Okay. Pretty cool. The goal, blessing to the whole earth. Same goal, blessing to the whole nations. How do you do that? And the creation mandate, it was multiplication through procreation. And the great commission, it's multiplication through discipleship. It's the mission of God, redeemed by Jesus, given and extended to you and to me. We have a purpose We've been redeemed for a purpose. The reason why Jesus has not come back, although he can come at any time, his return is imminent. But the reason he isn't here is because there's work to be done. And this is it. It's referred to as the Great Commission. And the creation mandate, he says, to fill the earth. In order to fill the earth, they had to what? They had to go. And the Great Commission, he says, to go. The creation mandate, he said, to be fruitful and multiply. In the Great Commission, he says, make disciples. And the creation mandate, he says, to subdue and to have dominion, to rule over the land. And the Great Commission, the way that we rule and we subdue is by teaching and baptizing. It's by extending God's mission and his message to the rest of the world. Are you guys following? Is this pretty cool? Jesus is redeeming God's original plan. He's redeeming the purpose for humanity. The new creation, those who have been born again of God's spirit, have been given a new mandate, a new mission, a new purpose, the Great Commission. All authority has been given unto me, Jesus said, and it's extended to them. Notice, though, the Great Commission can really, some have actually summarized it in that first word itself. It's actually the command to go to go can actually be better transliterated as as you are going. As you are going, we're supposed to be going places. I know that doesn't sound that fancy, but we're supposed to be going out of our homes, out of our little box, into our neighborhoods, into the world around us to bring God's blessing to other people. We're called to go. Jesus said right before he filled them um, with 
his spirit before he breathed on them and filled them with the Holy Spirit. In John 20, 21, Jesus said to them, this is the great commission in John 20. In John's gospel, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So notice, in the garden, God sends Adam, not out of the garden initially, but to extend the garden, he was called to go. Noah was called to go. Abraham was called to go. Jesus comes because everyone else failed and he comes. He was sent by the father. And then he's saying now, just as the father has sent me, I sent you. We are called to go. But this idea is absolutely countercultural even to the church. You know, the model the church has adopted over the last 50 years or so. Come and see, come and see, come and see. Come and see. Come and and fill this room with as many people as we can. And then the pastor or the preacher will preach the gospel and we're going to pray they get saved. Now that's cool. I love it. I love it when you invite people here and they come and I have the opportunity and privilege to share the gospel and people respond to the gospel. It's amazing. But that was never the method of Jesus. It was not the only method of Jesus or the main method of Jesus. Was not to invite people to come and see It was to go and tell of the goodness of God, to tell the gospel to the nations, to preach the gospel. You, the church, are called to come. And we, as the pastors and leaders of the church, are called to equip you in the work of the ministry so that you leave this place. And as you're going, you're a witness of Jesus to the world around you. This is the method of God. This is the method of Jesus. And it is absolutely countercultural. We live in a moment where isolation and individualism is at an all time high, even in the church. I read a recent survey about friendships, how it was something, something around the middle. Like most people do not have more than three close friendships. I think this is even the case in the church. Like we've isolated ourselves even from each other. We live in, in, in these little bubbles. We come together and we're cordial. We hang out. We love each other. We hug, you know, praise Jesus together. But then we go about our little lives. Hey, Acts chapter 2, they were doing life together. This is supposed to be a community that is deeply relational because we're made in the Imago Dei, the image of God. He's a relational God. We're called to be relational with one another. We're called to do life together. And that is actually to be a witness of the, to the world. And then we're called to have relationship with other people that aren't Christians. But we live in this place where even in the church, we bought into the secular mindset. The secular mindset that says, build your kingdom, live for you, do your thing, and stomp on anybody else that gets in your way. And we as a church even do this sometimes. And we isolate in our little bubbles and we live for self rather than living for the kingdom of God and for other people. But this was our our mission. It was to go. And as you're going then to make disciples. It's been said in order to make disciples, you have to be a disciple. In order to make a disciple, that word make there means it requires work. We've got a task to do. To work requires time. It requires effort. It requires energy. It requires strength. It takes work to make disciples. 
And in order to do that, we have to be a disciple. I love how we're talking about this topic of telling others about Jesus at the end of this list of what the early church was devoted to. Because the early church, they were disciples. They were devoted to King Jesus by worshiping him, by listening to the apostles' doctrine and prayer and worship and fellowship. They had a private devotion. And it was out of their private devotion then that this one comes last. That then after having a disciplined relationship with the living God, we are then to go and as an overflow of that to make disciples of other people. But this is the Great Commission. Nevertheless, it went from blessing and multiplication to now multiplication through discipleship. And the word that I would kind of rework for blessing is the word witness. Notice Acts chapter 1 verse 8. How do we make disciples then, Tyler? How do we do this? This seems scary. This seems difficult. I have no idea where to begin. I thought this was your job as one of the pastors. (laughs) Acts chapter 1a. Are you ready for it? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my... You will be my... You will be my... In Jerusalem and on all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This word for witness in the Greek is maruk, which we get the modern word for martyr. Everyone in the early church, witness and martyr was just the same thing. (laughs) Is that crazy? Why? Because they were a witness of what? A witness is someone who sees or experiences something important and testifies to others. The early church was a witness to the living God. To the resurrection of Jesus. They were witnesses of it. And so they were called in to be filled with the Holy Spirit because they needed help to be witnesses. We need help to fulfill the Great Commission. If we were just sent out to do it in our own strength like Adam, we'd fail again. So what does the Holy Spirit, God, Jesus, the Father sends the Son, and then the Son sends the Spirit to fill us with the Spirit so that we're empowered to fulfill the Great Commission. And the way that we fulfill the Great Commission is to be a witness, to be a maruk, to be a martyr, to testify of who we've encountered. And what God has done in our lives. See, the idea of a witness is actually a lot less scary than the idea of making disciples. A witness means that you've just seen and and, then saw and experienced something and you just tell others about it. And we do this all the time. It's like your favorite TV show. You're like, oh my gosh, I was aware this TV show is epic. And so you tell all your friends about your TV show because you're excited. Or for me, if you hang out with me, you know I like food. So I'm going to tell you about the best restaurants, in my opinion, around here. The closest one to the church, best burrito, Cocina de Carmen, right over by Sprouts. I love that burrito. Okay, I love it. I will tell anybody, I love that burrito. Why? Because I'm a witness. I've testified. I've experienced it. I've tasted and seen that it is good. (laughs) So naturally, naturally, I will testify. I will tell other people, oh, bro, you got to go check that place out. It's amazing. Surfers, I'm a surfer. The waves are pumping. What do we do? We call all our friends. We're like, guys, boys, the waves are going off. Get to the beach You know, we don't want it too too crowded, so just bring like three of you, you know, go low-key. But let's go have some fun. Let's go, sir. We're witnesses. What we are excited about, what impacts the core of our being, we will not be quiet about. Remember when you fell in love? You tell everybody. It's like Buddy the Elf, my favorite Christmas movie. You remember? 
I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. That's what Buddy Dell said. I love it. If we've encountered and experienced the living God, if he has brought you from death to life, from being blind to being able to see, from being lame and now being able to walk, if he's changed your life, you're a witness. And it shouldn't be difficult for us to just share about what God's done. And sometimes it is, it's okay. So we've been filled with the Holy Spirit to give us boldness to share. Like, remember, like, honestly, when the first time you brought your your boyfriend or your girlfriend home to mom and dad, it's like a little bit shy, right? You needed some boldness maybe to tell them like, hey, mom, dad, this is this is the one. Hey, we need boldness sometimes to testify of our experience. So that's why the Holy Spirit has been given to us to fill us so that we would be witnesses. And if you've forgotten about that encounter that you've had with Jesus, the reality is, is he's a living God. And we can have not just one, but encounters every single day with him because of what he's done at the cross. We can enter to a throne of grace boldly to find mercy and grace in our time of need. We were not redeemed just to have one encounter with Jesus. He's a living God that we have access to any time 24 7 and when we have encounters with the living jesus if we're touched literally by the god who created the heavens and the earth we're gonna tell people Hallelujah. we're gonna we're gonna talk to people like it will become natural it will become a natural byproduct get this Okay, they were called to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Are you following? You can break up the book of Acts like this. Acts chapter 1 through 7, the gospel spreads in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8 through 12, the gospel spreads to Judea and Samaria. Acts chapters 13 through 28, the gospel spreads to the ends of the earth. Now get this. Let's read how the gospel spreads to Judea and Samaria. Acts chapter 8 verse 1. It'll be on the screen. Saul approved of his execution. That's the execution of Stephen, a martyr, a witness. Saul, who became Paul, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Are you following what's happening here? They were given the Holy Spirit came upon them to be witnesses so that they would go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the earth. And they didn't do it. They didn't have like a strategic meeting like, okay, how are we going to spread the gospel to all the nations? They were actually timid too, just like we can be. (laughs) And so persecution entered into the church and they weren't doing it. And so they ended up being scattered to the other surrounding areas, Judea and Samaria. But get this, because they were witness of Jesus, wherever they went, the gospel followed them. And so because of persecution, Philip ends up going to Samaria. And as a witness, he preaches about Jesus and who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And Samaria experiences a revival. Because they're just witnesses. They're just telling, like, this is what we've seen. This is what we've encountered. This is what we've done. And wherever they went, the gospel followed them. The power of God into salvation. And disciples were made. Acts chapter 13 through 28. The gospel spreads to the ends of the earth. Let's read how this happened. Acts 13 verse 4. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit 
said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This is where the gospel is now going to the ends of the earth. But it wasn't something that they just naturally did. They actually were waiting upon the Holy Spirit. It was birthed out of an intimate time and devotion to the living God. And out of that intimate devotion and time with the living God, they were sent out to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit sent them out. The point that I'm trying to make here is that to make disciples, I just want to sympathize with us all. It can be a little bit scary. There's a better word I'm looking for. It can be a little bit intimidating. But when we view it through this idea of witness, that we've just encountered the living God, we've encountered Jesus. And if that's a genuine encounter, we will not be quiet about it. And if you are like, man, I don't know if I've had that encounter. I don't know. It's like that was so long ago. Jesus invites you in to have another one. He's alive. He's living. He desires to enter in. Jesus will send the Holy Spirit into the mess of your lives to continue to rewrite that testimony of God's grace. He will continue to redeem your struggle with sin. He will continue to give power and victory over that area. He will restore our families. He will restore marriages. If we invite him in and wait upon him, he will continue to write our testimony so that we will be witnesses of his power in the kingdom of God, for the glory of God, and for the good of other people. He will invite you back in. Michael Green, an author, theologian, wrote a book called Evangelism in the Early Church. He said this, 80% or more of evangelism in the early church was done by ordinary Christians just explaining their life to their friends and family. It's like, dude, I was praying for healing and they got healed. I was praying that Peter would get out of prison and he got out of prison. I was like waiting upon God and just spending time, like just, just praying to him. And it was like, boom, like the presence of God entered into my room. They were just doing life. They were devoted to King Jesus. And they're just telling people about what happened. Like, man, I had this addiction and God freed me. There was this demonic oppression because of things I got wrapped up in. But I've been living for King Jesus and it's gone. God's changed my life. They were just telling people, explaining their life to their friends and family. And this is how evangelism was happening. They were being witnesses. Are you following? This is the reason why we're here. And in closing, the way to wrap this all up is to talk about the motivation of the church. We've talked about the mission of God, the method of Jesus. The method then is through discipleship and witness. As we are a witness, we're actually going to bring blessing to other people and discipleship will just happen. It will happen. Now there's a time and place. We needed to be strategic about it. I'm trying to be strategic right now to get on campuses, public high schools throughout our area to bring the gospel in. But I'm doing it through blessing. I'm bringing pizza, blessing the students. Give me opportunity to speak. I speak, whatever. I'm trying to bring blessing there. There's a strategy involved in it. That's okay. But there's also a natural byproduct of just being a witness, have an encounter with Jesus. It will happen naturally. Disciples, people will say, I want what they have. Can I follow you? Or you invite them in, follow me. Or, or this is what God's done in my life. He can do it too. And people will be persuaded. 
by what God's doing in our lives, okay? But we've talked about the mission of God, the method of Jesus. Let's just end it with the motivation of the church. The motivation of the church can be summarized in the greatest commandment. So we've gone from creation mandate to the great commission, and we're going to end with the greatest commandment. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If your, your motivation is waning, is growing thin, is anemic, to be a witness and to make disciples, it's because once again you need to be reintroduced to the love of God. We love God because He first we experience encounter the love of God and then we love him in return and we love other people. You see, a vibrant relationship and love for God will result in a love for people. If we say we love God, we will love people. There is no such thing as loving God and not loving people. But I would just, I I have to say, as I do inventory in my own life and do inventory of the church, I think we've lost the love for people a little bit, if we can be honest. Our favorite verse is John 3.16. For God so loved, but all we do is complain about it. All we do is critique it. God so loved the world. Now, obviously not the world system, but the people of the world. Jesus was sent into the world. We were our sent to go into all the world. But all we do is complain about it. People that vote different, people that look different, people that talk different. We complain about the younger generation. The younger generation complains about the older generation. It's just a big complaining mess. Like the nation of Israel just murmuring in the wilderness. It's because we've lacked love. And the reason we've lacked love is maybe because we haven't had an encounter with the living God who is, he will just pour love into your hearts and out of that abundance of that love, you will naturally love other people. We need the love of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill God's call on our lives. But it's love. Get this. The creation mandate, the method of multiplication was procreation. What's procreation? An intimate relationship between a man and a woman, right? What's multiplication in the Great Commission? It's discipleship. How does discipleship happen? Discipleship happens in an intimate relationship with the living God. He first loved us and we love Him in return. And out of an overflow of an intimate relationship with God, disciples will be made. We will have a heart for the lost. We will have a heart for all the homeless people around here. We'll have a heart for for the grandkids. Like, why are they thinking like that and talking like that and looking like that? And the young people will have the heart for for, for the older people that they've been complaining about and all that. There'll be a love. We need the love of God. And we experience it by receiving the love of God. It comes in an interrelationship with the living God. So Jesus, we come before you right now. We thank you. For your heart to reach the world. It was from that heart and mission you reached us. You brought us from death to life. You met us in our mess. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. God, I pray that we will not forget where we came from.
Jesus, I pray that you would stir up the affections in our hearts for you and for other people. God, we confess that there are areas in our life where we have grown apathetic to you and to others. We confess that there are moments where we become lukewarm, where we have strayed away from building your kingdom and we've been focused on building our own kingdom. God, we confess and we repent. We turn back to you and we ask Jesus for a real encounter with you, that you would meet us with your presence, that we would marvel at your grace and your forgiveness, that there's nothing that we can do or have done that has kept us from your love. Jesus, I pray that your love would melt our hearts, that you would grow our love for you and for other people. And Jesus, we pray that you would come awaken your people and come awaken this city and bring revival. In Jesus' name, amen.